Well, I sat down Monday afternoon to begin this sermon, and I realized this is about the ninth year in a row I've preached on Malachi 3 on Stewardship Sunday. And I, I just thought to myself for a brief moment, you know, I, I thought of those Australian miners. As the story is told, uh, they, these miners were caught for about a week in Australia, and they couldn't get them out, and their families were huddled up, and they were worried about their husbands as they're down in this mine, coal drafting mine. What if they're even going to survive? And finally, the rescue team got to the miners, and they threw them down some food, and they threw them down some water, and they said, you guys all right? And they all said, yeah, that's fine. And they said, do you need anything else? And one guy cried out, yeah, the classified ads. I want a different job. <laughs> you know, when you approach Malachi again, you don't want to have the same old droning stewardship sermon. But you know it's not. And the Holy Spirit's doing a good work in us, and I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. If No visitors today, so you should all have your Bibles. I'm not going to tell you where to find it. You know where to find it. If you didn't bring your Bible, you rebellious people. All right? Uh, Malachi, in the words of my friend Paul Hallis, is a meddling little fellow. Uh, he touches on so many of the relevant issues in our lives and our service to God. And his name literally means my messenger. Um, this section of the Old Testament prophets are all during that time when the, the Israel's being sent back from captivity in Babylon to the rebuilding of the temple. And that's what's going on here. So if you were 100 years earlier to read the book of Malachi, the beginning of, Malachi, of Haggai, rather, um, you would see Haggai, my messenger is written in that book. Well, the Hebrew word messenger is the Hebrew word Malachi. So listen to the words of my messenger Haggai, my Malachi. That's what his name means. And Malachi does in this book what his name indicates. He wants us to know that if you go back to the first chapter, you flip back in your Bibles, it's an oracle. An oracle, another word you could use is, it's a burden of God to his people. He's speaking for God. He's not, he, these are not his ideas. This is not what he has to say, but what the Lord has to say to his people. The people have come back after the temple was destroyed in 516 B.C. And now in Malachi's time, the, the temple is rebuilt. It's up and running. The government has given them a grant to make sacrifices so that the people would pray for the king of Persia. He had motives here. They're a colony of Persia back in their homeland, Jerusalem. And these are supposed to be upbeat times. But they're not. Because it's gone back to the beginning of Haggai chapter 1 instead of the end of Haggai. Because the end of Haggai... The people are excited. They're going to build the temple. They're excited. They're going to give their lives for something greater than themselves. You know, kind of we look at this building, which we're going to buy. It's a good thing. We're doing this for our children and our grandchildren, that we're going to buy this. We're going to renovate it. We're going to make it to the glory of God. And that's what, how Haggai ends, but it's not how it began. And this is what's happened now in, in Malachi. 
God's people are a mess. And during this time, what's happening all through those books, Haggai, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, if you read the, the variant writings of the kings of that time, these are the guys who we get the phrase, I am the great king. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And so it's no surprise then that when you read these prophets, what is God saying? I am the great king. I am the king of kings. Not these guys. And so at the time of Malachi, the people have been back in the land for several decades, and they have begun to do what colonists do. And what we all do, quite frankly. Because you know it's not easy to raise kids. It's not easy to pay taxes. It's not easy to make a living. It's not easy to build a temple and worship every day. It's not so easy in their case to be a subservient people under a dominant foreign ruler. It's not easy to be a colony. And so they do what people do. They give what they have to. In other words, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. What's the squeaky wheel? The king, the Persian government. And what's happening is that they're giving God the leftovers in all of their lives. And what we have in Malachi is a wonderful understanding. And when we get to chapter 3 of Malachi, we learn three great truths for us as followers of Christ. One, the unchanging love of God for his people. Two, the power that money has over us. And three, the power we can have over our money rather than having it over us. So that's the three things we learned this morning. The unchanging God the power money has over us, and how we're rescued from that power. First, let's look at the unchanging God. Chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of God, are not consumed. If you read the entire book of Malachi, what you're going to understand is that this is a pugnacious people. Uh, every time they say something, that God says something to them, they respond with an opposite exact question. It's like a hormonal teenager. No offense, teenagers. I love you. Yeah, I, I was a hormonal teenager. Your parents were hormonal teenagers. Every single one of us were hormonal teenagers. You're a hormonal teacher. But this is what happens in the book of Malachi. Chapter 1, look at verse 2. I have loved you. Have you loved us? Your priests despise my name, verse 6. How have we despised your name? Chapter 2, verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Why does he not? Chapter 2, verse 17. You have worried the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Return to me. How shall we return? You have robbed me. How have we robbed you? Your words have been hard against me. How have we spoken against you? My goodness. This is a pugnacious, hard-hearted people. And so, my friends, Malachi brings this oracle and a burden to Israel to 
first remind them that God loves you. Because if he didn't, you, O Israel, would be wiped from the face of the planet. (laughs) The fact that he's kept this stubborn, hard-hearted people for himself, for his glory, to be a blessing to the world, is an absolute wonderful miracle. And I think we at Christ Church, with all that we have been through over the last nine years, can we not say, thank you, Lord, for keeping us together. That bringing us to this place, for keeping your favor upon us, to, to all of a sudden, we, we move, come to a building and more visitors start just walking through the door. Where are these people coming from? <sighs> thank God. He has loved us with an everlasting love just like them. But you see, what our culture wants to do is to make God into a Stepford God. That God is a changing God. The Holy Spirit's doing a new thing, and therefore, any way they want to behave or rebel, that's what they do, and that's their God, which is a God of their own making. Or in other words, a Stepford God. You remember the movie, The Stepford Wives. I've quoted this several times. It was based on a novel where the wives are these wonderful, subservient uh, women to their husbands in Stepford, Connecticut. But they were without personality, character, or in their own will. It was sad. So many people want to make God their Stepford God. And when God doesn't push back on you a little, you don't have God at all. And so, my friends, God is the unchanging God. And he loves us and has kept us. We can be grateful for that. Secondly, what we see is the power that money has over us. Here they are. The temple is up and running. And he says, yet you are robbing me, verse 8. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Because what's happened is they're paying the governor. They're paying all their bills and they're leaving the leftovers for God. And God is calling them back to be his people, no matter the economic state of the culture that's around them. See, there's a term in English called the almighty dollar. It's a way of getting across the idea that some people worship money, but that's not really true. Um, Money, however, will always show us what we do worship. The person who's socking it away and saying, look, I don't spend any money on myself. And sneering at people who have wonderful homes and terrific clothes. That person is investing their money in security. And that's the security idol. For some, money serves as an approval idol. For others, it's a security idol. For others, it's a control idol. The point is, if you find it much, much easier to spend money on anything rather than to give it away to the Lord in ministry, you're enslaved to it, and it's an idol. Your money isn't in a treasury. Your money is in a temple, but it's not God's if that's the way you're living. And that's why money has the power over us that it does. And you know what? Money can't possibly give us what we think it's going to give us. The idols that we're using money to get never, never, never give us the security or the control that we're longing for. I'll never forget Tim Keller sharing the story of his beloved Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Dr. Leach, 
Dr. Addison Leach. Isn't that a great name? Addison Leach. Tell my kids to name my grandson Addison. That's wonderful. Years ago, Dr. Leach said there were two young women that were bright, ambitious in the college where he was teaching. And their parents wanted to get their master's degree and get on with it. Business, banking, on to safe, wonderful careers. But they gave their life to Christ because, after all, Gordon College is a Christian college. <laughs> and Dr. Leach was there, and they gave their life to Christ, and they decided they're going to go on the mission field. And the parents were furious. So they called up Dr. Leach because it was his fault because they became such religious fanatics, you know. And now, instead of going off and getting a career in security, they were going off into the wild mission field. So the mother called up Dr. Leach and said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree and start a career and get something in the bank so she could have some security. And he answered, and he realized this was rather harsh, but it makes for a great story. <laughs> he said, let me just remind you of something. We're all on a little ball of rock called the earth. And it's spinning along through space at a zillion miles an hour. And even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die. That means that under every single one of us is a trap door. That it's going to open and we're going to fall off this rock. And underneath will be the everlasting arms of God or the everlasting unfavorable presence of God known as hell. So... Maybe we should get a master's degree and get some security. See, the biggest savings account in the world can't stop cancer. It can't stop traffic accidents. It can't stop broken hearts. It can't give you any of the things that only God can give you. He's the only security that we can ultimately have. He's the only significance that we can ultimately have. And he's the only love that we can receive that we can never lose. And so how are we rescued from the power of money? Well, Malachi gives us a clue. When you get to verse 10, he says, Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the doors of heaven for you and pour down for a blessing until there is no more need. See, what Malachi and the scripture teaches is that your heart's treasure is wherever your heart has determined what it is. You will do anything for it. You'll die for it. You'll pay any cost for it. You do anything to sustain it and to reclaim it. Jesus came and died for us. Why would he do that? There's only one answer. Why would he go to hell on our behalf? And experience the infinity of hell. The only answer would be that you and I were his heart's treasure. You die for your heart's treasure. We would die for our kids. We would do anything for them. And here's what's so intriguing. Every other treasure in the world will basically make you die to purchase it. But Jesus is the only treasure that died to purchase you. Some of us are working ourselves into the ground for our careers. Our careers demanding that we die for them. But Jesus Christ is the, is the significance that dies to purchase you. 
That's why Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, See that you excel in this grace of giving, Corinthians. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the reality of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that beautiful? See, what was happening, he's writing about the churches in Macedonia in that section of Scripture. And Macedonia is under extreme poverty. To put it in our terms, you know, gas prices were going through the roof in Macedonia because the camels were drinking so much gas. All right? The housing market had tanked and their homes had lost all their value. People were foreclosing on their mortgages and moving into rentals that were becoming dilapidated. And unemployment was at an all-time high in Macedonia. They were engaged in war. So what does Paul say to do in response to all this? Give! Out of a love for Jesus Christ and everything he wants to do. And he doesn't put any pressure on those Corinthians. Did you check that out? He doesn't say, you're a Corinthians, I'm the apostle. Daggone it, give. Redig deep. He doesn't say that. He says, you have so much to give. No, he doesn't do that. He also doesn't put pressure on their emotions. He doesn't say, look at all these poor little Macedonian children with their huge eyes. He puts no emphasis on the emotions, and he puts no emphasis, pressure on your will. What he does say, if you do not have the freedom to give your money away in eye-popping proportions... And heal the world with your wealth is because something else besides Jesus Christ is your functional Savior. See, that's about the radical generosity of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we think about it, and when we think about it, all of a sudden we're moved to such generosity. And verse 10 in Malachi says, test me. Go ahead. Test me. See if I don't pour out upon you such an abundance of blessing. We don't know what that blessing is, by the way. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme, all right? But when we see Jesus dying on the cross for us because we were the treasure of his heart, then and only then will he become the treasure of ours. When we see that he made us the treasure of his heart, that will make him the treasure of our hearts. And suddenly, money isn't that significant. It just becomes money. Because Jesus is the significance. Suddenly, money's not our security. It's just money. Jesus is our security and we'll be free. Finally free. See, I, I gave you the quickie budget sheet, but what I should have said, don't sit down with a calculator. Sit down with a cross. As we pray and think about what our gifts will be this year. And think about what Jesus did until it makes you love like he loved and give like he he gave. Kimmy and I were talking about this, and, and she got up in the morning, and what flowed from her pen, she shared with me, and I go, wow, that's really good. She wrote, generous living flows from out of every aspect of our lives because of one man's generous life. And out of that, we become a conduit of generous living in every area of our lives. We spent the last month talking about how the Lord is asking us to evaluate our time and reprioritize if necessary. 
to evaluate our ministries and reprioritize if necessary and to reevaluate our giving financially and reprioritize if necessary. Do we recognize that all of our lives, lives are his? Or do we cling to that which is not lasting? We owe Jesus Christ everything because of his work on the cross. Does he reign and rule in every aspect of our lives? Do we desire such generous living, living for him above all? Let us, let us let go of the reins and discover what true living is, what true freedom is. So in a little bit in the service, we're going to have the in-gathering before the offering. We're going to have that time of the service, which is our tradition here. We bring the harvest basket out. Voila. You know, it's down here in the front. You should have a stewardship card. We've encouraged every family over this past week to pray and consider what our pledges will be for 2017. It really helps the vestry to make the budget for 2017. And I know some of you are saying, I'm on a fixed income, I can't give much, or you're younger and say, I, I can't give much. My friends, we survive on those a lot of small gifts. There's no gift that's insignificant. We've been dominated mostly by families that are living paycheck to paycheck with a little bit of debt. Maybe a lot of debt, you know. But as a result, the pyramid of gifts and the size of gifts has always been a very flat pyramid. You know, we've got some really generous families, but the vast majority of families live on sacrificial, modest gifts, and we need everybody to participate. And so if you're here this morning, eating from the fruit of Christ's church ministry is because people in the past 40 years have significantly given and sacrificially given. And so to sum up Paul's words to us, to the Macedonians, or to the Corinthians, about the Macedonians, let us give cheerfully out of a love for the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Let us give regularly, and let us give sacrificially. Uh, I don't want any classified ads. I like my job. Okay? I love you. I'm grateful for every single one of you. And the reality is, God's doing a good work. So let us never forget the unchanging love of God. Let's recognize the power of money and let's just give it away. Because we're giving all of our lives away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day. We're grateful that you have called us to be stewards of your grace. As we consider our pledges as families for 2017, we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would do a mighty work in our midst. That, Lord, you would bring in the abundance and that we would trust you sacrificially as never before because of what you're doing in our hearts. Lord, as you, this work is new in us, but it's not new to you. And we're grateful that you have kept us as a people, bonded us together, and shown in our lives. Lord, continue that in our midst, and may you receive the honor and glory always in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.